I love you, Mom. <laughs> I'm going to make burgers. That's what my mom wanted this afternoon was a nice cheeseburger. So pressure is on for me to grill a nice cheeseburger today. Um, no, mothers, uh, all kidding aside, thank you. I mean, both biologically and um, in terms of spiritually, we would not be here were it not for you. So we are uh, quite grateful for you. And I agree very much with Pastor Jeff. So much of what you do goes uh, unappreciated. So you at least get one day for us to say seriously, thank you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 14. I've been walking through this gospel and um, very grateful for Andrew Martinez getting up last Sunday. Uh, good job, brother. And we're going to continue going through the life of Christ. We're going to hit a turning point here. The message is titled, Jesus and the Call to Compassionate Faith. And what I think we're going to see in the text is that Jesus is going to mourn John the Baptist. He's going to show miraculous compassion on the crowds, and he's going to disciple Peter from fear to faith. And for us today, the point is that we're all afraid of something. Every one of us is afraid of something, but we are called to grow in compassionate faith in Jesus more than fearing for our own lives or glory. I went to the University of Florida, and after I graduated, I started working for the Department of Transportation in Lake City, and I was on their PE trainee program, which basically meant for about 18 months, I rotated through each of the different work groups that the Department of Transportation had. Now, one of the work groups is the bridge inspection team. I thought this was going to be so much fun. Little did I know. So... While I was on the bridge inspection team, the Dames Point Bridge came up for inspection. And if you know, in Jacksonville, I-295 East, the Dames Point is that one looks like a triangle. It's a cable suspension bridge. It's actually two bridges that meet together. So maybe some of you didn't know that. They're, they built the bridge from the south end. They built the bridge from the north end. And in the middle, it meets as a giant shear lock. You can think kind of uh, one end and the other, and that's what holds the two bridges together. You feel it, and about the middle, you go over a big dunk. Well, that's where the two bridges meet. And the shear lock is, is basically, you know, two pieces of metal with um, some wear pads between them. And every so often, those wear pads have to be replaced. So you have to inspect that annually to make sure that those pads are still in good condition. Now, I, of course, thought that maybe we'd have like a drone or something to go in there, and that is not how this worked. When we got there, uh, the guy I was with, Don, said, all right, let's go. And let me tell you what this involved. This involved the edge of the bridge, like 165 feet below there was the St. John's River. There's this rickety little ladder, and you have to get out on the side of the bridge you know, and, and crawl down, and there's this crawl space between the two bridges, and, and it's about three and a half feet high by about three and a half feet wide. Well, there's this ledge on one side and a ledge on the other with about a two-foot gap between where you're just staring all the way down to the river, and so you're kind of hunched like this, and then you have to get back out, and 
climb on this rickety ladder. And if you've ever been on the bridge, like with your windows down or on a motorcycle, man, the wind is blowing like 60 miles an hour. So as I'm getting back up, my hard hat gets blown off. And uh, Don said, all right, you want to go inspect the other side? I said, heck no. And I got back in that truck and I let him inspect the other side. My point is, I thought that I was pretty good with heights until I got up on the side of the Dames Point Bridge and I realized I had a fear of heights. Now, is anybody man enough or woman enough to admit with me that you're afraid of heights? I got anybody else who's, okay, yeah, a lot of hands shot up. In fact, I thought it was funny yesterday I uh, got to say a big thank you. Many of you were here for a work day at the church, and we got playground equipment set up. If you want to see it, take a look after the service. It looks really good. But all of us, you know, knew one of the jobs was going to be getting on the roof to cut off limbs that were hanging on the roof. And several of us are staying around like, well, who's going to do this? And we all said, well, if Josh doesn't show up, nobody's going to do it because nobody's brave enough to get up there. So thank you, Josh. We're glad you showed up. The the limbs are not hanging on the roof. Uh, But yeah, the, the point is, we all are afraid of something. And I found out that at least at 165 feet above the water, this guy is afraid of heights. Well, in the story today, we're going to, in particular, meet two men who are afraid. One, Herod Antipas, and the other, Peter. Herod thought he had finally put an end to what scared him. But he's going to find out that he could not outrun this particular fear. Another man, Peter, was afraid. But he still is going to reach out to Jesus, and he's going to find that Jesus is stronger than his fears. Now, along the way, we're also going to see Jesus and hear his call to compassionate faith. So, if you have your Bibles and you are able, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. God's word says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. If that sounds confusing to you, it is. We'll get to that. (laughs) Because John had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Kids, that's gross. And the king was sorry, but because of the oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. How's that for a Mother's Day gift? And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed 
their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. I mean, full golden corral, happy bellies full. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain behind, excuse me, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, uh, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. Father God, this is some incredible scripture. Jesus, I mean, if this is true, it, it defies what we just know from reality and, and, and it challenges us to believe that what can, is contained here is either complete rubbish or, or it actually happened and we need you to help us both understand and apply it rightly so that our lives are forever changed by the truth contained in your word. Jesus, I'm convinced that it's true and that it reveals you as the Son of God. And I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here who is not yet convinced that you are the Son of God, you would do that work and give them those ears to hear and receive you in faith as the Savior and Lord that you are. I pray also, Jesus, that you would bless each of us and, and give us the blessing that you deem best for us this morning. Help us to indeed fear you most and not the things of this world. In your name I pray, dear Jesus. Amen. 
Thank you. You may be seated. Verses 1 to 12, I'm going to ask this question. What was Herod afraid of? And one of the key verses we're going to look at is verse 2 where Herod says, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. Now, back in Matthew 2, you may remember uh, the Herod there, sometimes called Herod the Great. Uh, you could call him Herod the Not-So-Great, and I think that would be okay. Uh, remember, this was the Herod in Matthew 2 that found out about Jesus when the Magi came to worship the infant Jesus in Bethlehem. And uh, Herod said, well, you tell me where this promised king is so that I, too, may worship him. And the Magi, being warned in a dream, decided not to tell King Herod. They left and went back home going around Jerusalem. And Herod, not to be outdone, decides that he's going to kill every baby boy in Bethlehem. And Jesus would have been killed except that God sovereignly protected him by warning Joseph in a dream. And Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus fled Bethlehem to Egypt. And so uh, were saved from Herod's wrath. That is not the Herod of Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, the Herod there is one of Herod the Great's sons. Herod had three sons. Archelaus actually had several sons, some of whom he killed. But by the time that they are inheriting ruler rights, there was Archelaus, there was Philip, and there was Antipas. Archelaus, uh, in, in like six days before Herod the Great passed away, his will was redone and he gave Archelaus the lion's share of his kingdom. Archelaus was uh, named Herod after his father, Herod Archelaus, ruled over Judea from Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary were moving back to Judea, they were warned about living in Bethlehem too close to this Herod Archelaus, and so that's why Jesus grew up in Galilee in a little town called Nazareth. It was not safe to be close to Archelaus. In fact, the complaints against Archelaus were so strong, he was so violent, so hated, and his subjects complained so much, even his brothers, Antipas and Philip, complained to Rome. And so finally, Rome deposed Archelaus. He lived out his days in exile, and they appointed a man to rule in his place. We know him as Pontius Pilate. And so Pilate took over after Archelaus was removed from Jerusalem. But Philip and Antipas still had small kingdoms. They got a quarter of Herod the Great's territory. Because they got a quarter, they were called tetrarchs, given a quarter of the rule. Philip being given the lands to the west near the east, and Herod Antipas being given Galilee. That is the Herod of Matthew 14, where he is called Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was given the title Herod because Archelaus had been deposed. This Herod, Herod Antipas, was a lot like his dad. He was brimming with ambition, he had unbridled lust, and he had persistent worries. Initially, to kind of solidify his reign, he uh, married a princess, the daughter of King Aratas IV of the Nebatian tribes. Aratas was wealthy and powerful, and so Antipas married his daughter. But there was a problem. 
Herod's lusts undid him. On a trip to Rome, he decided to visit Philip there along the seacoast. And while there, Herod Antipas fell in love with his brother Philip's wife, a woman named Herodias. And they both hatched a plot, and that was that they would divorce their spouses at the same time so that they could marry. And that's what they did. Herodias divorced Philip. Herod divorced Aratas's daughter. And then they were wed, and Herodias, with her daughter Salome, moved to Galilee to live with Herod Antipas. Now, if you're at all confused, I mean, this sounds like straight off of something where we got to go to Dr. Phil, right? I mean, this is soap opera worthy. This is how messed up this family was. Who marries his brother's wife? It's likely that Herod Antipas lived for many days in fear of Artas and getting revenge for shaming the daughter he divorced. And in fact, that's what happened. In 36 AD, Artas successfully attacked and destroyed much of Galilee in reprisal for Herod divorcing his daughter. So John the Baptist, remember him? The famous preacher who announced that Jesus had come, the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, he knows that the adulterous affair between Herod Antipas and Herodias was wrong. And so he publicly preaches against it. You cannot marry your brother's wife. I mean, even pagans know that's wrong. To claim to be king now of the Jews and to commit that kind of adultery is wrong. And that kind of preaching got John the Baptist thrown into prison. Now you might ask, well, why didn't Herod just kill him? I mean, clearly the man doesn't have a lot of moral scruples, and you'd be asking a good question. Matthew tells us that fear controlled Herod. Look in verse 5 of Matthew 14. It says, though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. So Herod Antipas is controlled by fear of what the people would do if he just outright had John executed. Herodias apparently did not have that kind of fear. She wanted the prophet silenced. And so she manipulated her husband. And, and this is, there's no excuse for it. It's just gross. She sends her daughter, maybe between the ages of about 12 and 14, to do some kind of seductive dance at Herod's birthday. Herod likes it so much that he makes a rash promise to give the girl whatever she asks for, and Herodias has her. Probably it is a foregone conclusion, but she asks for exactly what her mother instructs her to ask for. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Well, now Herod's got a problem. You see, because he's got competing fears. He's afraid of the people and the prophet, but he's also afraid of losing face in front of his powerful political buddies. A little bit of fear of God, maybe, over here. A whole lot of fear of man over here. And which wins out? Well, the prophet's head is presented to the girl who presents it to her mother. So clearly the fear of his political buddies and losing face to them won out over whatever little fear of God there was. Herod thought he was done. 
Finally, no longer is Herodias going to nag me about this prophet. No longer am I going to hear that this was an adulterous relationship. No longer am I going to worry. Is there any truth to what this guy is saying? But apparently he wasn't done. Because as Herod Antipas started hearing reports of Jesus, the miracles he's doing, the preaching he's doing, that Jesus is out there saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Herod can't but help wonder, is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? You see, Herod couldn't get away from this nagging fear So much so that his superstition kicked in and he thought that he was hearing John the Baptist's ghost in the preaching of Jesus. If you want to know what happened to Herod, it's quite appropriate. Uh, At some point, he wanted to enlarge his territories farther. And so he goes to Rome with a delegation to convince Caesar to give him more land. Meanwhile, an opponent named Agrippa, who one day, Lord willing, we will meet in Acts, sends his own delegation to complain against Herod Antipas. Caesar sides with Agrippa and the delegation. And rather than getting promoted... Herod Antipas is deposed and lives his life with Herodias in exile in France. And so he is undone. But this Herod, he was so afraid of the people. He was so afraid of his political buddies. He was afraid of Jesus because he thought Jesus was the ghost of John the Baptist. Herod's life was dominated by fear, even with all of his wealth and power. And he reminded me of a, an eerie short story. Has anybody read the little short story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Telltale Heart? Anybody read that one? Okay, now, um, kids, don't go reading it without your parents' permission because it, it's, it's weird and it's a little scary, okay? But parents, this is, this is an eerie tale, and I'm going to give you the cliff notes here. It's told from the first-person perspective of a murderer who walks us step-by-step through why he carefully plotted to murder an old man with whom he lived. The man had a blue eye, and that eye scared him. And so he said, the man had to die. And the murderer describes vividly how afraid he was of the man, and his eye, and and his heartbeat that just seemed to grow louder and louder, and the noise bothered him before he killed him, like a clock, the pendulum swinging back and forth. Now, What happened is he killed the man and he hid the man's body underneath floorboards. And the police showed up and the the murderer was so confident that they would never discover that he even set up chairs right over the very spot where he buried the body to talk to the police officers. And, of course, they asked, where was the old man? Well, he's away on business, but stay, rest for a little bit, let's chat So the officers stayed and talked for a while. They chatted. All the while, the man is buried right beneath their feet. And at first, the murderer believes he's gotten away with everything. But here's what happens. As the officers talk longer and longer, this murderer begins to think that he can hear the man's heart beating beneath the floorboards. 
And then he becomes convinced that the officers can hear it too and that they're just playing a game with him, that they, they are going to arrest him at any moment, um, but they, they're just prolonging the inevitable. And so finally, in fear, he, he is so convicted and convinced that they can hear it that he says, I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. I share that because I think something like that is what is going on with Herod Antipas that he says, this is John the Baptist. Well, no, it isn't. He knows it's Jesus, but his conscience is so racked that he knows he's hearing some of the same preaching and therefore his superstition kicks in and think, he thinks this is John raised from the dead. Now, here's the point. We're all afraid, but most fears lead to death. There is one fear, one central fear that leads to life. We've already read where Jesus earlier warned his followers that persecution would come and that they should trust God rather than fearing men. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Have no fear of them, your persecutors, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. That is, God will take care of it in his own good time and way. So he reiterates, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Herod Antipas was both. He was both a man who was the persecutor and a man who was controlled by those lesser fears. We're going to meet in this story Peter and the disciples, and they're going to show us what it looks like to start with fear and transition from fearing man and fearing the world to fearing God most. Herod Antipas, like the murderer in Edgar Allan Poe's story, was dominated by what we might call the fear of man. That is, being so afraid about what other people think and, and about what, what they evaluate you as and the power they hold over you and, and the influence they're going to have and the outcomes that your decisions are dictated by other people's opinions. I brought this little book because it's been so helpful to me. It's uh, by Ed Welch. It's called, When People Are Big and God is Small. And then the subtitle is Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. If you're like me, when I read a story like Herod Antipas, it sounds so bizarre, so out there, that I can leave church kind of giving myself a pat on the back. Well, at least I didn't like steal my brother's wife and have people killed and divorce people. And, and you know, I've not cut anybody's head off after a birthday party. I'm doing pretty good, right? It's easy to hear Herod's terrible tale and leave feeling good about yourself. But here is what I'm going to suggest. All of us, sadly, can relate to Herod a little bit because we struggle in a little bit of the same way. We, too, struggle with the fear of man. So here are some questions, and this comes right out of Ed Welch's book. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Bowing to peer pressure is being controlled by the fear of man. Are you overcommitted this is sadly one that many times I'd have to say yes to. You might be a people pleaser, which means you struggle with the fear of man. 
Do you need approval from someone? Maybe a spouse or a parent. When we need, I don't mean just like, but when we need someone's approval or respect, they control us. This is the fear of man. I'm not saying spouses, you don't trust each other, but you know what I mean. Like you're almost undone if things are not going well, if you don't have that approval you crave. Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? When we need to feel good based on what others are saying, fear of man controls us. Do you worry you might be exposed as an imposter? Some of you men know what I'm talking about. Fear of exposure by others is a different form of the fear of man. Are you often second-guessing your decisions because of what others might think? Fear of man makes us indecisive, and it can squelch conviction. Do you get easily embarrassed? If so, people's opinions probably define you, and you, like me, struggle with the fear of man. Do you tell little white lies? Be careful. Probably you're trying to make yourself look better because you struggle with the fear of man. I mean, how big does the fish have to get until it's impressive, right? Are you jealous of others? You may be intimidated by their success or their possessions. You too struggle with the fear of man. Do you avoid people? Claim, I don't need anyone. But your avoidance reveals how much you fear their negative reactions. You struggle with the fear of man. And here's probably the, the hardest one. Do you compare yourself to others and feel pretty good? Well, I'm better than so-and-so. I'm not doing that. This is perhaps the most dangerous form of fear of man. It's when compare yourself with others and feel good because it doesn't feel like fear. Your life is still controlled by the fear of man. You know, Jesus only met Herod Antipas one time. It's recorded in the gospel of Luke. It's Luke chapter 23, verses 6 to 12. Pontius Pilate has interviewed and questioned Jesus and doesn't find anything wrong with him, but he knows that Jesus grew up in Nazareth and said, well, that's Herod's district. And he sends him to Herod Antipas, who happens to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod is thrilled because by this point, he's kind of gotten over his fear. And he says, well, maybe Jesus will perform a little miracle for me. And so I'll get to see it. And that'll be like a fun and entertaining afternoon. And so Herod questions Jesus at length. And do you know, Jesus says nothing. And Jesus does nothing. Herod makes fun of Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. It's as if Jesus' silence is passing judgment on Herod. No doubt Herod quieted his conscience by making fun of Jesus. But I promise you, when Herod died and stood before Jesus with Jesus' as judge, Herod realized what a fool he was to fear man rather than God. And so Jesus warns, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him 
who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. If you're like me, maybe you can relate a little too much to Herod. Maybe you were convicted by the questions about the fear of man. What do we do? What is the response to this fear of man? Well, let's look to Jesus on a dark night on the sea. The next section, verses 22 to 23, I'm asking the question, what was Peter afraid of? And the key verse we're going to look at is verse 27 where Jesus says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus had a long day. And we'll go back. We'll get to that long day. And it was punctuated by a night of solitary prayer. Meanwhile, the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee rowing against the wind and the waves, just as Jesus had told them to do. And in the middle of their rowing, again, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., that's uh, the, the Roman time would divide the night into different shifts. So the last or the fourth watch being from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Sometime in that time, Jesus came to the disciples walking on top of the water. Now, I have to pause here for just a second because in today's day and age, um, I just have to say this. Like, this isn't a, a metaphor. This isn't like, Oh, oh, maybe Jesus was just a super good swimmer and he swam so fast it was like, man, he swam to the boat quickly. So they called it, he was walking on the water or something. It wasn't that Jesus was really good at spotting shallow rocks to walk on top of, to navigate the some three miles out from land they were. Like, no, no, no. On top of the water means on top of the water. Uh, I don't highly recommend the movie for its theology, but remember in Bruce Almighty where Jim Carrey is like walking on top of the water? It's like that kind of on top of the water. And this is weird, right? Because if you've ever put your foot in a swimming pool, you go down. Like I don't care how in shape or how less in shape and buoyant you are. Nobody stands on top of the water, right? Some of us who are a little bit more buoyant than others may float a little better, but none of us puts our foot on the water and has the water hold us up. So just, just to get the picture right, this is a miracle. Jesus is walking on the water. And so rightly so, the disciples were not just startled or fidgety or like, huh, that's weird, right? They're terrified. They said it has to be a ghost. Uh, I, I was laughing when I was listening to a sermon here uh, in Matthew 14 by now the deceased R.C. Sproul. He said it wasn't like they needed to understand Bernoulli's principle to know that people just don't walk on the water. So how is he walking on water? Well, it must be a ghost. And so they cried out in fear. Jesus calls out to them to reassure them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, we don't know exactly what the disciples are thinking. Maybe they thought that this was a watery spirit come to torment them in the middle of this storm. Maybe this was some superstition kicking in. Maybe, like I said, they just know, well, people don't walk on water, so this has to be a ghost. But do you hear how similar the stories are? Herod heard Jesus preaching and doing miracles and thought it was the ghost of John the Baptist. The disciples see Jesus coming and are terrified and say, this must be a ghost. Both of them are afraid of Jesus because they think he must be a ghost. 
Now, we've seen the disciples out on a storm on the Sea of Galilee before, back in Matthew chapter 8. And at that time, Jesus was asleep in the boat, and they cried out to Jesus. Jesus woke up. He told the storm to shut up. The storm shut up. He told the disciples that they didn't need to be afraid, and the disciples were absolutely amazed with Jesus. Now, the disciples are again in a precarious situation on the sea, but Jesus isn't in the boat. Their frayed nerves nearly snap when they think they see a ghost coming towards them. And so Jesus mercifully identifies himself and declares that he's not there to harm them. Peter considers his options. Either this is still a ghost out there because we can tell it's a dude walking on the water and he's lying. Or maybe this is Jesus and they don't have to be so terribly afraid. And so he asks, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now let's pause for a minute. Why did Peter say that? I don't think Peter is just being completely random here. I don't think this is the equivalent of Peter just saying, okay, Jesus, um, if you're really Jesus, uh, what's my birthday? You you know, I, I don't think this is just a random thing. Or if you're really Jesus, Make there be 400 elephants fall from the sky right now, right? Like, like this is not just some kind of a random thing Peter is spouting off. I think what's going on here is Peter is beginning to put the pieces together. Jesus has calmed the storm. Jesus has healed many. Jesus has cast out demons. Jesus has preached the good news. In the last chapter, Jesus claimed to be the one who sows the good seed. He claimed to be the one who presides over the final judgment. He claims to be the one who decides who is in and who is out of the kingdom. I think Peter is wondering, Jesus Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And I think there are two key passages in the Old Testament that maybe Peter had in mind that would bring him to the point where he'd ask, if you are Jesus, command me to come to you walking on the water. If if you want, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 43. I think it'll be behind me as well. Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 43 say this. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. This is Yahweh, the Lord, claiming that he will be with Israel to redeem them, to save them out of the waters so that Yahweh could tell them, don't be afraid. And what's Jesus doing? Jesus is there telling them, don't be afraid as he is passing through the waters. And so I think Peter started to put it together. If this is the son of God, then he would be able to help me pass through the waters just like Yahweh claimed he'd be able to do. And it may be that he also thought back to another time. 
You see, after God miraculously brought Israel out of Egypt and they got to a point where they were trapped up against the Red Sea, Yahweh miraculously parted the waters and allowed Israel to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then when the Egyptians tried to follow, the waters collapsed and fell back on their heads, drowning the Egyptians. At that time, Yahweh used a prophet named Moses. And the way Yahweh convinced Moses to be the spokesperson to the people is Yahweh appeared to Moses in a bush that burned but was never consumed. And he revealed his name to Moses as I am. Now at one point, the Old Testament scriptures are translated into the language of the Greeks. And the translation for I am there in Greek is ego emi. And if we looked to the Greek, the Koine Greek of the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus says, it is I, the Greek there is ego Amy. What am I saying? I'm saying that I think Peter heard Jesus say, I am. And he said, could this be Yahweh? If so, he could help me pass through the waters. And so he threw it out there. If that's really you, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. I can't imagine what it's like as Peter steps out of the boat and puts his foot on the water and it holds him up and he starts taking steps towards Jesus and, and, and I mean I just can't imagine and of course it's not as if the wind and the waves have died down and so I'm picturing him almost you know trying to get his balance and all that but at some point as incredible as it was He looked at the wind and the waves and that fear of something other than God took control. And it says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does. He reaches out and saves him, but then he rebukes him. And and catch the scene of this. This is while Peter and Jesus are standing on top of water with a storm around them. And Jesus takes time to look Peter in the eye and say, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then together they get back in the boat. And once there, the wind ceases. And the disciples, I think Peter included, say, truly, you are the son of God. And they worship Jesus. I think Peter and the disciples have begun to see in faith that Jesus really is God's son. The only one who deserves worship, and every Jew knows this, because the Lord your God, the Lord is one, is Yahweh, the Lord, the I am. And they are giving worship to Jesus, and Jesus is receiving that worship. If we were to go all over scripture when somebody incredible is worshiped who is not God, the first thing they say is, don't worship me, even if it's an angel. I'm a fellow servant. Don't worship me. Worship God. Jesus doesn't say that. He allows the disciples to prostrate themselves before him in worship. And they are just beginning to understand that Yahweh is in the boat with them. Hey, here's the application for us. The one fear that leads to life is fearing God. Because fearing God takes us to faith in Jesus, God's son, and to the forgiveness of our sins. 
The one fear that leads to life is fearing God, which ultimately takes us to faith in Jesus, God's son, to forgive us of our sins. Here again, Jesus is teaching, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's the him? Apparently, him who can destroy in hell is Jesus. We need not fear man. We need to fear the son of man who is revealed in the book of Revelation as the one who will judge all mankind at his second coming. You see, according to the Bible, you were made by God the creator. Therefore, you are owned by God the creator. Therefore, you owe God the creator allegiance and worship. He gets to make the rules. He owns your life. And sadly, every one of us has turned to our own way of living. We have chosen to worship anything and everything other than God. And we prove that by our actions that don't go according to his rules. We have sinned. And sin is treachery. It's, we, we're traitors. We've rebelled against the God who made us. And the right punishment for that sin is eternal death, being separated from God forever in the place called hell. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus has lived a perfect life, never sinning, and has proven that he's the son of God over and over again. He just walked on water. And then this Jesus, as we will see in the next few weeks, chooses to go to a cross and die. Not because he's, he's just some martyr trying to convince us to lead a life of, uh, you know, self-sacrifice. No, because he is literally taking the wrath of God our sins deserve on himself. And he's taking our place. He is substituting himself for us that he might be punished and we might be pardoned. This Jesus is the one who says to the disciples, do not be afraid. And it's as if he you put Matthew 10, 28 with Matthew 14, 26 as if he say, hey, don't be afraid of the wind and the waves. I'm here. Fear me, not the wind and the waves, and then trust me. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. The right kind of fear, fear of God, fear of Jesus leads to life. Okay, step back for a minute. We've looked at Herod, who was so afraid of man that the little fear of God he had, like it just went away. And then we looked at Peter that the fear of the wind and the waves is replaced by a greater fear of Jesus so that he ends with the disciples worshiping Jesus in the boat. The fear of God supersedes the fear of man. But you might ask, well, well, okay, I get it. Jesus is amazing, but can I really trust him? I mean, a guy who can just walk on the water and tell the wind and the waves what to do, is he somebody worth trusting? Well, let's look back at verses 13 to 21 might ask this question, where might the faith in Jesus take us? And I think the key verse here is verse 14, where it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus is fully human. He hears from John's disciples that John has been killed in prison. Now, I don't know if any of you have had a family member who was murdered but I don't think this is good news. I think there's, anytime you hear of a family member, John was Jesus' cousin, 
who dies, it's going to be hard. But to hear that someone was murdered wrongfully, it's going to be a very difficult time. And we might ask, therefore, why did Jesus want to get away by himself? Why, why, why does he need some time? Well, maybe in part that Jesus needed just time to mourn his cousin's death. I mean, again, he is fully human. I, I've had loved ones die, and it hit me in the gut to, to hear that someone you love was murdered. It may be that he needed some time to grieve. But I think what's also going on here, in verse 23, it says that after he dismisses the crowds, he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. You see, I think after John's death, Jesus knew that his own position had just become, from a human perspective, precarious. If the king in charge would kill my cousin for faithfully preaching, repent. Jesus' time is drawing near. And in fact, that's exactly what we see Jesus start telling the disciples in a few chapters. Jesus begins predicting his death. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I believe Jesus sought solitude with the Father to prepare himself for this his most central mission, the most difficult part of the journey. I believe he's beginning to turn from Galilee towards Jerusalem. His time is coming fast. It's the turning point in the story. We're going to move from mild frustration with the Pharisees to open confrontation, from a relatively safe preaching ministry in Galilee to people plotting how to kill Jesus. The road to Jerusalem looms large. Jesus knows that to openly preach and to openly heal from this point forward is going to be more and more dangerous. And so he seeks a place of solitude to pray and to prepare. And then when he goes on shore, what does he find? Thousands of people there longing for him to preach, to heal, to do what Jesus does. And does Jesus say, hey guys, this is politically speaking, a really bad time for this? I mean, didn't you see what they just did to John? I mean, can you come back in like a few years once this is blown over? Did he say, that, you know, guys, I'm tired. I just want some time to myself. I mean, come on. Doesn't the son of man get some paid time off? Like, like where's, where's all those sick leave hours? No. He looks at them and it says again in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, maybe 10,000 people, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus doesn't back down from the mission of proclaiming the kingdom is at hand and from backing that proclamation up with miracles. He doubles down. He does perhaps his most vivid miracle yet. 
5,000 men, not to mention women and children, are going to experience what he is about to do, even when it's dangerous for Jesus to do so. Why? Because he is not ruled by the fear of man. He's ruled by faith in his Father and a compassion that governs his actions. What does he do? I love this. I love this. Jesus, right, we've established is Yahweh walking on the water. Jesus could have done exactly as he did back in Exodus and just told that manna to start raining from heaven. But instead of providing bread miraculously that way, Jesus decides to get the disciples involved. He says, okay, you bring them here. You give them something to eat. The disciples, exactly like I would have done, say, hey, Jesus, I mean, we know you, we trust you, but dude, we got like five loaves of bread and two little fish. How are we going to feed 10,000 people with that? I mean, I love you, Jesus, but I mean, the math ain't adding up here. What's going on? They're worried they're going to be embarrassed. And Jesus has them bring the crowds and sit down and listen to this. Jesus blesses the bread by asking the Father to bless. He breaks the bread. He gives it to the crowds via his disciples. And he's going to do the same thing when he establishes the Lord's Supper. If you want to see this, it's so cool. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. The Lord's Supper is the New Testament, the new covenant version of the old Passover meal. That time when God appeared to the Israelites and said, hey, the angel of death is coming tonight and he's going to kill every firstborn. And the only way to be saved is if you take a lamb and kill it and put its blood on the top of your doorpost. And then the angel will see the blood and will pass over your place and your firstborn will be spared. When Jesus appropriates that Passover meal to himself, he'll say, I am the lamb. I am the bread. I am the wine. It all is now about me and what's about to happen on the cross. And so here in Matthew 14, Jesus is beginning to show the crowds that he is Yahweh. And that's why I think the disciples put it all together and say, truly, you are the son of God. But think about this, and I, I love this. Jesus purposes to show compassion, to feed these who've been with him, doesn't want them to go home hungry. He's already fed them spiritually. He could do it any way he wants. He could have that bread start raining down just like he did with the manna. But instead of doing that, he lets 12 men gather around and be part of feeding the crowds. Now, I don't know how this happened. I don't know if Jesus breaks some off and Jesus is literally like breaking off bread 10,000 times. I don't know if he gives them some broken bread and every time they break it off, like the piece they just broke off magically comes back. I don't know. But somehow, five loaves of bread and a few fish feeds 10,000 people. And then there just so happens to be 12 baskets full of leftovers so that every disciple who's going around has a full basket left over. You give them something to eat. You bring them here to me. You see, here's the point. If we trust Jesus, we will conquer the fear of man with compassionate faith. 
We will conquer the fear of man with compassionate faith. What a privilege to be part of this. I tell you what, I, I'm torn. Like if I had to pick whether I would want to be able to be with Peter and stepping on the water, or I would want to be with the disciples handing out bread that never, I don't know. Like both would just be absolutely amazing. But here it is, right? I think this is a picture of exactly what Jesus said when he first called Peter and Andrew. At that time, in Matthew 4, 19, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is exactly what Jesus will call us to at the end of this gospel when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Here it is. If you're like me and you struggle with the fear of man, Matthew 14 gives us two surefire ways to fight against the sin. One, the central fear in your life has to be the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom that will lead you to faith in Jesus, God's son. And two, as you trust Jesus, Jesus is gonna lead you to have a compassion for others. And when you have compassion for others, they don't control you. You see, you can't fear what you're having compassion for. If you're having compassion for others, you're considering their needs, you're considering their position, you're putting their needs above yourself. You are so rooted in what the Father thinks of you that you're now freed up to show that love to others. Think about it. Instead of bowing to peer pressure, in Jesus, we will seek to make decisions from the conviction that God's way is right and best and will patiently work to lead others to Jesus. Instead of living to be a people pleaser, we will know that the hero others need is Jesus. Our job is simply to make much of Jesus. We will stop trying to be the hero. Instead of needing our spouse's approval or requiring that self-esteem, we will trust that in Jesus we are declared right with God, that we're free to love others and esteem others' needs more than our own. Instead of worrying about being exposed as an imposter, in Jesus we've already confessed our sin. We've already experienced forgiveness. The skeletons are all out of the closet. We have been pardoned. We're now freed to live authentically and to genuinely care for others rather than to fear them. Instead of getting easily embarrassed or telling white lies to make ourselves look good, in Jesus, you've been forgiven. You have the hope of living with God forever. You're now freed to make much of Jesus and help others find freedom too. And instead of comparing yourselves to others and feeling good, you compare yourself first to God and realize how far short you fall. You go to Jesus alone for forgiveness and then you are freed to selflessly care. The cure for fear of man is first to fear God and to trust Jesus and from that trust in Jesus be moved to compassion for others. So what are you afraid of? What fears are governing your life? I know 
Uh, some of you might say, well, I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of cockroaches. Um, I get it, right? I'm afraid of talking to a girl or being asked a question I don't know or being poor or monsters on the bed or having to give a public speak or of falling off bridges like the Dame's Point. I get it. So let's, let's change the question. Not just what are you afraid of. What are you most afraid of? What fear would actually take the point of governing your decisions. Herod was a little bit afraid of John, a little bit afraid of Jesus, but ultimately wrote Jesus off as irrelevant, someone he could just make fun of and send back to Pilate. Those in the crowds were amazed by Jesus. They were thoroughly impressed. Jesus showed incredible compassion to them, but they didn't worship Jesus. They didn't proclaim him the son of God. Instead, if we were to go to John 6, first they want to make him king and afterwards they get rid of Jesus because Jesus is too radical when he claims to be the bread of life. Only the disciples go from being terrified of Jesus to trusting Jesus, to worshiping him as God, to experiencing that compassion as it overflows for others. Hey, if you're a Christian today, I'm going to invite you. Uh, Pastor Wesley is going to come up and play here in just a minute. Take this time to just spend with God and, and ask, what am I most afraid of? What's governing my life because of fear of man? And if, if you find that you are really struggling with fear of man, give that to him in prayer. If you'd like me to pray for you, I will be sitting down here up front. I'm going to sit right over here on this pew. Come talk. I'd be glad to pray for you. You can also fill out. There's a little connect card just right on it. Hey, pastor, I'm afraid of this. Would you pray for me? And I would be glad to pray for you. If you're not a Christian today, let me encourage you. Take that image of Peter stepping out of the boat and make that yours. It's time to decide whether or not you believe in this Jesus. He's done everything to show you he is the son of God and it's time to trust him. We're going to pray. Pastor Wesley's going to come. Like I said, I'll be down here. You can also write on your card and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you for your love and grace. Jesus, I, I think one of the biggest things you do that's an evidence of your grace is you give us your word. I mean, that we have the stories from today and that they're true. These are just so incredible. They can't be made up. I mean, if you were trying to sell us on a lie, I don't think you'd make it as incredible as you walking on the water. And yet here we have it, your power and your compassion on display, and then your silence before a man who thought he didn't need you. Jesus, I pray that you would get done in our hearts what you deem needs to get done. For the Christian in the room like me who struggles with the fear of man, move us to repentance to confess that is sin, to trust you alone for forgiveness, but to also trust you to change us, to help us put that sin to death and to not live by the fear of man, but by the fear of God and faith in Jesus. For the non-Christian room, somebody who has maybe danced around this for years, I just pray that you touch their heart right now so they would know it's you and that they would trust you. Give them that gift of faith. Plant the good seed in them, please, Jesus. Give them the courage to talk to me or to talk to somebody today. Jesus, again, thank you. We love you. You never cease to amaze. It's your name I pray. Amen. Hey, use this time and spend it with the Lord.